Good morning once again, everyone. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Probably, uh, people would tell me probably in the world that I ought to give a trigger warning uh, this morning. Um, I'm going to talk about some controversial things, and at least for the moment, or for a moment, I'm going to talk about some difficult things that might be, you, uh, might be difficult to hear about. But Deuteronomy chapter 32, going to give you just a second or two more to turn there. If you found it, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Again, Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 and 10. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. You may be seated. God's word says that Jacob, Israel, is the apple of his eye. Recent weeks, I have heard some numerous strong suggestions to pastors concerning on what to or what not to preach on in light of the war in Israel. I saw one meme on Facebook that said, don't let the guy who wants to teach a Sunday school class on eschatology uh, teach Sunday school right now. <laughs> Another said, pastors, don't preach on the end times right now. People are going to get enough of that on TV. People need hope. And there may be, in fact, some wisdom in these things, but to me, the preaching of the end times is hope because our hope is returning. The hope of nations is returning. The Prince of Peace is returning to put an end to war and injustice. Somebody say amen. amen. And so this morning, I want to talk, uh, touch for a few minutes on the conflict we are seeing unfold in Israel and Gaza. My focus is not going to be on the last days, though I'm going to touch on this briefly. I think we really do have to be careful to not declare too strongly that this is the end of the world. That the rapture is imminent, and I think most of you know by now, I, I don't really believe in the rapture the way that most people do. We've got to be careful not to declare that this is the start of the tribulation or watch out for the Pope or for Trump or for Biden because they're the Antichrist and so on and so on. Why do I say that? Because as I always warn in all things concerning future prophecy, we can't be too dogmatic about anything except that Jesus is returning and we need to be ready to stand before him face to face at any moment. Amen. We all have our opinions. We all have our best educated guesses about what uh, the end time prophecies mean. But that is the thing that we can be sure of. Jesus is returning. And even more so that we could stand before him at any moment face to face. So be ready. However, could this be the beginning of the end? Maybe. The attacks in Israel came at the end of one of the biblical fall feasts, which is usually very, very significant. 
um, I've been trying to see what major events fell on the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur and so forth. You maybe remember my preaching earlier in the year when I explained how the tribulation would likely begin on the Feast of Trumpets and conclude on Yom Kippur seven years later. This is the pattern of history where major events for Israel, good and sometimes bad, fall on certain days of the biblical year. I did find, interestingly enough, that this attack on Israel, this latest attack, came exactly 50 years from the Yom Kippur War. 50 is, of course, those of you who know biblical time periods, is the year of Jubilee. But it's also seen as, uh, can be seen as a new beginning, a, a renewal, and things often repeat on the 50th year or the 50th cycle. This attack came 50 years later, and both wars began with a ground assault on Israel. The attack caught Israel unaware. The military intelligence, they didn't pick up anything. They were shocked. They were surprised in both uh, events. Both events, the Yom Kippur War and this latest attack that fell on the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, both occurred on the first Sabbath of October. Again, both on a holy day, and I'm sure if we look harder, we will find more and more connections between the two events. But could this be the end, uh, the start of the end of days? Perhaps, perhaps not. These events, this terrible war, are something to watch with an eye to the eastern sky. I said I would only touch briefly on the possible end time ramifications, and I'm going to stick to that. The question I want to ponder this morning is why is this war taking place? Is there a side that is right and one side that is wrong? How do we as Christians respond to this conflict? What lessons can we learn out of these events? <clears throat> First, I want to say that in this war, there is one side that is evil. Right. Without a doubt, there is one side that is evil. And the other side is just in this war. What Hamas has done is absolutely pure, absolute sickening evil. It would seem that I shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't need to state something like that. But even in our own nation, there are those who support Hamas. Around the world, there is even greater support for them. And as the church, we should not hesitate to speak out against the evils of Hamas. Hamas, of course, claims that Israel is the aggressor, the oppressor, the one who is in the wrong for oppressing the Palestinian people. But when you attack innocent men, women, and children, even the elderly, Holocaust survivors, when you go into one town and you murder 40 children in one village, and you're not content to just murder them, but you cut their heads off, you go even as far as find an Israeli mother who is pregnant with a child and you murder her and then cut her belly open to take out her unborn child and cut its head off. When you rape women and then parade them celebrating through the streets of Gaza, you have absolutely no moral high ground to stand on. Amen. You are pure evil. And God hates hands that shed innocent blood. And that is exactly what Hamas has done. And you have to understand, Hamas 
was created for one purpose, the destruction of Israel. It is a terrorist organization just like ISIS, except the people of Gaza voted them in as their government. Hamas's own charter says this, among other things. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it has obliterated others before it. Like the Nazis and so many before them, Hamas exists to destroy Israel and the Jewish people. The charter goes on to say the land of Palestine, Israel, is an Islamic holy possession consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day. No one can renounce it or any part or abandon it or any part of it. The day the enemies usurp part of Muslim land, jihad becomes the individual duty of every Muslim. In the face of the Jews' uh, usurpation, it is compulsory that the banner of jihad, holy war, be raised. You see, if the Palestinian people were to lay down their guns and stop firing rockets into Israel, there would be peace. If Israel were to lay down their guns, they would cease to exist. That is the difference. And many people will say, why can't we broker a peace deal? Why can't there be peace? Surely there is a peaceful end to this conflict, something that can be negotiated, right? Wrong. Again, this is from the Charter of Hamas. Peace initiatives and so-called peaceful solutions and international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. These conferences are no more than a means to appoint the infidels as arbitrators in the land of Islam. There is no solution for the Palestinian problem except by jihad, holy war. Initiative, proposals, and international conferences are but a waste of time. An exercise in futility. And you see, that's why no one can broker a peace deal. That's why there can be no peace, because they do not want peace. What they want is the destruction of Israel. So why? Why is there such hatred in the hearts of these men? Why do these people want to destroy the people of God so violently that they would kill infants and cribs and cut the heads off of babies? Certainly they're used as pawns of the enemy. Satan tried to kill the nation of Israel and Egypt through Pharaoh. He tried to kill the Savior through Herod. He tried to obliterate the people of Israel through Haman, through Hitler, through Stalin, and numerous others. Satan has long desired to kill the people of the nation of Israel because through them salvation came. The Savior came through them. Jesus said in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. And that is what the enemy, that is what Satan hates. He hates the fact that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was born through the Jews. But there's a deeper reason, a more, but is there a deeper reason, a more basic reason why there is such hatred in the hearts of these that want to kill the Jews and destroy their, the land of Israel to take it as their own possession? Yes, there is. To understand the depths of the emotions and anger we see in the people of Palestine and throughout the Middle East, we have to travel back to the days of Abram. 
Before Abram became known as Abraham, before he had any children, God made a promise to Abram and his wife Sarai, later named Sarah. The promise was that they would have a child, a child of promise. And through the son, Abram would then become the father of a great nation. And from this line of men, the Messiah would be born. However, God took his time as God is apt to do. How many of you wish God would hurry up? Pretty much all the time. What are you waiting for, God? Abram and Sarai were getting older, and Sarai had trouble believing what God said anyways. And so she came up with a less than brilliant plan. In Genesis 16, we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She was barren. She could not have children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, if you don't know the story, I'm sure you can see how things are going to go bad right from the start. This is not going to work out. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she, Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarai. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, surprise, surprise, and she fled from her. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the uh, the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael. There may not be a more broken set of people in the entire Bible. Hagar, being a slave, was forced to sleep with her barren owner's husband so that they could have children through her. Then after she is forced to bear them a son, she is despised for the son she was forced to bear for them. Now Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abram, but he was not the son of promise. Because of Sarah's hatred, Abram sent Ishmael away, and under the normal rules of inheritance... Ishmael was to receive the greater portion. He was to receive the lands of his father. He was to receive the blessing and the inheritance. He was to receive the preeminence. Instead, he feels rejected by his father. And his younger brother Isaac receives everything he felt he deserved. Perhaps the part that stung the most was the rejection of his father, Abram. Now make no mistake, Abraham loved Ishmael. In fact, I think we can say that Abraham even asked God, Ishmael be the one. Can he be the one? Can he be the one that will receive the promise? When the Lord meets with Abram and tells him of Isaac's uh, imminent conception and birth, Abraham said to the Lord, <coughs> Genesis 17, 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You see, God says the son of promise is about to be born. And Abraham says, wait a minute, I've already got a son. Why can't he be the one? And the Bible quite clearly states in the next verse, God said, no. No. He's not the one. He's not the son of promise. 
For all of Abraham's love for Ishmael, he was the son of flesh and not the one chosen by the Lord to receive the promise. Then the Lord said, But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. To Ishmael, he said, no. Isaac is the son of promise, and he is the one who I will establish my covenant with forever. You see, Ishmael was born by natural means. Isaac was born by a miracle to a woman too old to have kids who was barren anyways. And the actions of Abraham and Sarah were the, and, uh, were the result of them not trusting in and waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled in their lives. They sinned. They took matters into their own hands. And it was Hagar and Ishmael who felt the consequences of that sin the most. Hagar and Ishmael were again were broken by what Abraham and Sarah did to them. Instead of treating them like the family that they were, because of Sarah, they became outcast, sent out into the wilderness with no one to watch over them or care for them except the Lord. Can you understand the wounds that Ishmael felt? So Hagar takes Ishmael out into the desert. And they both begin to die from thirst. And Hagar put Ishmael under a shrub and walks away so she doesn't have to watch her son die. She then begins to wail in her brokenness and cries out in despair. She forgot that she had once called the Lord the God that sees, for he had seen her need and her trouble and had even spoken directly to her and reassured her. The Bible says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar forgot what Ishmael's name means in that God would hear their cries. Ishmael means God hears. The Bible says, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God would not make Ishmael the son of promise, but God did not abandon Ishmael either. In fact, God would keep all the promises to both the sons of Abraham by making of them great nations. He would give them vast portions of land. God watched over Ishmael just as he did Isaac. But, Isaac, or, but Ishmael was never going to be the son of promise. Sadly, Ishmael grew up and is described as a wild man. He has daddy issues. He is envious of his brother's uh, inheritance and is angry at his abandonment. In his eyes, he has no father and he is no one's son. If you stop to think about it, these, these issues, these hurts are carried all the way down through the generations to one of his descendants named Muhammad. And Muhammad starts a religion which denies that God is a father. 
and says that he has no son. Ishmael's daddy issues are reflected in the religion his descendant starts. And he is jealous of the descendants of Isaac and of their inheritance, the land of Israel. And so why is the land of Israel, this tiny little strip of land and a sea of nations, so sought after? Because Isaac got it instead of Ishmael. That's right. You will hear over and over again about how the Palestinian people have nowhere to go. And it's their ancestral homeland that Israel is stealing. Bull. History is a wonderful thing to study and know. Historically, there is no ethnic Palestinian people. Boy, you want to get in trouble, say things like that. The terms Palestine and Palestinian were first used by the Roman Empire for the purpose to disassociate the Jewish people with the land of Israel. Anyone from any ethnic background who lived in the land known as Palestine was called a Palestinian. Arab, Jew, Christian, African, European, it didn't matter where you came from or what you looked like. If you lived in what the Roman Empire now called Palestinia, you were called a Palestinian. Palestinians, again, were not limited to Arabs and they were not a unique ethnic people. The concept of a Palestinian ID, uh, identity began forming in the media in 1913. In the years that followed, it became politically advantageous to create a unique Palestinian identity to further the goals of the Arab people in uh, that part of the world. Bernard Lewis notes, it was with the British conquest of the country in World War I that Palestine, for the first time since remote antiquity, became a separate entity, this time in a mandate held by the British Empire and approved by the League of Nations. The name adopted to designate this entity was Palestine, resuscitated from an almost forgotten antiquity. This area included not only present-day Israel, but also present-day Jordan. You see, they will say there is no place else for the Palestinians to go. They have no land. Jordan was part of Palestine, and it was de uh, designated for the Palestinian Arabs. Jews in the region rejected the name Palestine because of its association with what Lewis says was the largely successful Roman attempt to destroy and obliterate the Jewish identity of the land of Israel. Here is the truth. Biblically, the land belongs to the Jews, to Israel. Now, in the secular world, that might not mean much. But it also historically belongs to the Jews. Internationally, it belongs to the Jews. If you want to enter a difficult debate from a worldly perspective, debate who has a right to the land. Is it the Jewish people who conquered the Canaanites who are no more? How about the descendants of the Babylonian, the Greek, the Persian, Roman empires who conquered that land? What about the Arabs who lived there for centuries and ruled? What about the British who con uh, conquered it in World War I? Or the people that they gave it to who just happened to be the Jewish people? For us as believers, 
at the end of the day. There is only one who has the claim to the land of Israel. And that is the Lord God Almighty. That's right. The Bible says in Psalms 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so you can debate with people about who has a right to the land and all of this. But as Christians, we go with what God said. And God said, I gave that land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have to understand that the most volatile conflict in the world today springs forth from a young boy's broken heart at his father's abandonment and the fact that his brother received the land of Israel instead of him. The root of all the bloodshed we see today is because Abraham could not wait on God for the son of promise and birthed a son of flesh. His sin is the root of the terrible bloodshed we see today. Now, the Bible tells us that if we are faithful to confess our sins, the Lord is faithful to forgive us of our sin. Amen? Amen. And what a wonderful truth and fact that is. But I got a fact and a truth that's not so wonderful, and that is that our sin still has consequences. Sin can have far-reaching consequences. In Abraham's case, it has touched generation after generation after generation of both Jew and Arab. And so what lessons do we take away from this? One is, do things God's way and make sure to wait on his promise. And not try to manufacture the promise on your own. How many men have suffered because they did not wait on the woman that God had for them? How many women have suffered because they just had to have a husband and married the wrong man? How many children live with heartaches because of these broken marriages and or sinful unions and divorces? How many spiritual and material riches have we missed out on because we did not wait for God to promote us? And instead promoted ourselves or went looking for other opportunities instead of waiting on the Lord and his promise. How many heartaches have we felt because we chose the flesh instead of the promise? How far does the consequences of our sin reach in the future generations? I remember, and I've told the story before, but I remember when Becca and I went to get fingerprinted to become foster parents. And I was talking to the woman who, uh, who did the fingerprinting. She was saying how she's almost getting ready to retire and she can't wait. And she recounted how that she had been doing this so long that she had fingerprinted three generations of the same families not to become foster parents. You see, the sins of one generation were being passed down to their children and to their children's children. Now, how many of you are thankful, we sang it earlier, that what God wants is blessings from generation to generation to generation. And so we must choose the promise. We must learn how to wait on God to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. We must learn to desire the promise over the flesh, for the promise of God is so much better than the things of this world. 
And so what does it mean to desire the promise over the flesh? It means doing things God's way. It means relying on him and his direction for our lives. It means don't get in a hurry when you are faced with pressure to act or temptation to do something. Imagine the bloodshed the world would have been saved. The unimaginable heartbreak the world has felt that if, if Abraham had just said to Sarah, I'm not sleeping with Hagar. I don't care what you say. I'm going to wait on God. And I can imagine Abraham must have been tempted not only by the thought of having a son. But by getting to sleep with a much, much younger woman. Imagine if he had just said, no, I'll wait. The events of the current day are a warning and a lesson to us. Wait on God to fulfill his promises. Do it his way. And I want to leave you with a few last thoughts this morning. Hamas is evil. Some of you may know this. Hamas in, in uh, Hebrew literally means violence. They are going to feel the wrath of Israel for the wicked things they have done. And Israel is just in this war. We need to pray that not only will justice be done, that God will protect and empower Israel in this war, but perhaps most importantly of all, that God would watch over innocent lives on both sides. That's right. Amen. The sad reality is that there will be civilian casualties. As Israel invades Gaza with troops and tanks and drops bombs, innocent lives, including children, are going to be lost. This is the reality of war. It's going to happen. Especially because Hamas, these ones that will commit violence, care nothing about life. They hide in schools. They launch rockets from hospitals, which is, by the way, is the reason the hospital in Gaza was destroyed. They did it to themselves. They use women and children as shields and then cry to the world about Israel's war crimes. After these monstrous attacks and murders the Palestinian president, he says, hey, can't we have a peace treaty? I think not. Because you put Israel in a position where they understand we can no longer go on living like this. I predict that a large part of the world will turn against Israel in the days ahead, even though she has been left with no choice but to fight to ensure her survival. You see, this is how the enemy ensures that the circle of violence will continue from generation to generation. You see, Palestinian children, they will not understand anything except that the Jews came into our land and they were the ones that killed my mother, my father, my brother, and my sister. And that is what they will grow up knowing, not understanding that this happened because their fathers went in and killed Jewish mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. One generation, 
passes on violence and hatred to the next generation. And it goes on and on, century after century, generation after generation, until somebody breaks the chain. Sadly, in this conflict, I do not believe it will end until the Prince of Peace, Yeshua, comes to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. You know, we think the Prince of Peace had such a wonderful title, but do you understand how he's going to rule? He's going to rule with absolute authority, and he's going to say, no more war. No more injustice. I will not allow it. And from Jerusalem he will reign, and he will sit on the throne of David, and there will be peace on the earth, and the government will be upon his shoulders. But do not miss that the same principles apply to our lives and family. We either pass on righteousness or the curse to our children, who then in turn will most likely do the same to theirs. Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a de- desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Israel is the apple of God's eye. Don't poke God in the eye. I've spoken multiple times this year on the vengeance of the Lord upon those who attack Israel. One day the Lord will come. And I won't read it for you today. But there is going to be a bloodbath in Edom. He is going to ride out in fury as a husband defending the wife he loves. God loves Israel. She is the apple of his eye. But I have news for you. God loves the Arabs, the Palestinians too. Though Ishmael was rejected as the promised son, he was not rejected by the Lord as a son. And I think this is a really important point. The Lord saved him in the wilderness. The Lord revealed himself to Ishmael's mother, Hagar, and he spoke directly to her. He watched over them. He kept all of the promises that he had made to the son of Abraham. He made great nations of him. He gave him great vast land and resources and riches. God loved Ishmael too. And just as the Lord died for you and me, just as he came to save us, he came to save the sons of Ishmael too. Let this fact not get lost in our zeal and our anger over the wicked uh, actions of terrorists. As much as we pray for the salvation and peace of Israel, let us also pray for the salvation and the peace of the sons of Ishmael too. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Who is included in that all? 
all. The sons of Isaac, the sons of Ishmael, all. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. May we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May we pray for the peace of Gaza. May we pray for peace in the world and that the one who will bring peace, true peace, true justice, will come quickly. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Would you stand as we close this morning? The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward